Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It'll be up on the screens if you want to follow along. In the beginning, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness was over the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters, and then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And our second lesson is from the first letter of John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and then jumping over to chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. This is the message that we heard from him, Christ, and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in God there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with God while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new commandment that is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says, I am in the light while hating a brother or sister, while hating a sibling, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves a sibling lives in the light and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, giver of light and life, thank you for bringing us to this time and to this place. Be with us here today, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning, I want to talk to you about light, but not just light in general or light as we find it in scripture, but light as we use it liturgically or in worship. The sermon this morning is the first in a series of sermons on the five symbols we use in worship and why we use them. Throughout the history of the church, we've consistently used five things in worship. And we're going to be up on a screen in just a second. But those five things are light, word, water, bread, and cup. These symbols, which we all still use today in church, connect us back to Christianity's Jewish roots and to the history of the church. But they also influence us as Christians today in the 21st century with 21st century problems like PowerPoint. <laughs> is it going? Is it on one screen and not any of it? Okay, no. It's, 
If it's stuck, we won't worry about it. I can send you all the pictures later. They're just pretty. Oh, great. So click one more. There we go. Light in the top corner, word in the next, water in the bottom, and bread and cup on the right. So this morning when I want to talk about light as a part of these symbols, we're going to talk about the three points you just saw as a preview. But when we look at these symbols, these symbols that have been important to the church and are important to us today, it means that they're important to us to know and understand. I believe deeply that what we do here in worship can and does shape and form what we do out there in the world. But I also know that much of the time, we don't really think about or understand what we do in worship or why we do it. Let me tell you a story as an example. So at my home church, St. Luke's UMC in Hickory, the upper elementary children were the alkalites for the church. They're the ones who bring in the light of Christ. You give them the magical bronze fire stick. It's technically called a candle lighter with a bell snuffer, if you ever need to order one, but that's outside of the story. We gave a bronze fire stick to a bunch of 8 to 11-year-olds. We also had crucifers, usually 11 to 13-year-olds, who walk in front of the alkalite, and they carry the cross. Now, I have an older brother who's two years older than me and a younger brother who's two years younger than me. So for all of my alkalite and crucifer career, I was paired up with one of my brothers. This worked out fine because we all had to be at church every Sunday anyway because my mom was in charge of the nursery. Until one fateful Sunday when my little brother Jackson was the alkalite and I was the crucifer. Now, before I tell this story, I want you to know that I've totally forgiven him. He's more than made up for it. He helped me move a couch this weekend, so we're square. So on this particular Sunday, Jackson and I are standing in the narthex, which is the fancy word for the room between the front door and the sanctuary. And I have my cross, and he has his fire stick. And the head of the altar guild lights the wick on the candle lighter and sends us down the aisle as the first hymn is playing, with the pastors in tow behind us. But just as we get to the sanctuary doors, something starts to smell. And it is a horrible smell. Like I can see the people in the back rows turning around to see where this awful, awful smell is coming from. And I whip my head around trying to figure out where this smell could be, what, what's happening. And what you have to understand is that even though I've always had a lot of hair, back then I had long hair that was up in a ponytail. A ponytail at this moment, which was whipping back and forth as I tried to figure out what was happening. And then suddenly, someone rushes at my head with a cloth, goes for my ponytail and starts smothering it with the cloth. And I turn around and Jackson is just standing there, created away, candle lighter in hand, you see, my little brother had lit my hair on fire. Now, I have been assured over the years that the kingdom of God will still come if the crucifer's hair has been lit on fire and that God will still be worshipped. But this incident made me wonder and question why we entrusted a 10-year-old with a fire stick in the first place. Why do we choose to do such a thing in church? 
And I can only answer the second question with any kind of certainty. Why do we do this in church? Why continue a practice that is clearly a fire hazard, even though we have electricity? Well, it would do us all good to remember that following Christ is not always a safe thing, but that's a sermon for another day. The reasons that we continue to bring light into the sanctuary and to keep it here before sending it back out into the world are that light is fundamental, light is a metaphor for God, and light reminds us of the presence of God. We use light in worship because light is fundamental, light is a metaphor for God, and light reminds us of the presence of God. So let's dig into that first point. Light is fundamental to us. Now, Genesis 1 isn't a science textbook, nor was it ever meant to be. But on this point, at least, it hits the nail on the head. At the beginning of all things, when God began creating, as the Hebrew word bara is best translated, you'll see it on the screen in a second, the beginning of all things, there was darkness. Even for hundreds of thousands of years after the Big Bang, the universe was what we call opaque in astronomy. It was too hot for the electrons, which usually go around the nuclei of atoms, if you remember your high school chemistry. It was too hot for electrons to combine with nuclei, and so photons, the little packets of light that bounce around, would just bounce from electron to electron to electron. It was chaos. There was no light to be seen in the universe for the first 300,000 years of the universe. But then, recombination happens. The universe cools just enough for those electrons that have been bouncing around like crazy to lose energy and to start to orbit around atoms like we see in the more stable universe of today. And when those electrons combine around the nuclei, suddenly the photons are free. And the light that we see from right after recombination is this. It's called the cosmic microwave background. If you've ever seen static on a TV, you've seen it. Because about 1% of the static that you see on old TV sets is from the cosmic microwave background. So you have probably all seen the first light in the universe just on your TV sets. It's the oldest thing that we can see in astronomy. So in the beginning, when God began creating, there was chaos and darkness. And then there was light. And you find creation of the sun and the moon and stars in creation myths across the globe. All our ancestors realized the importance of life to light, light to life. And so they tell stories about how light came to be to help the generations to come pay attention to the world around them and learn their place in the world. That's what the creation stories in Genesis are for, too. They have that same purpose. They're here to help us understand our place in the family of things. And so those who came before us knew that light was essential to our life and that we needed to pay attention to it and told us these stories. Pretty smart for people who never studied microbes or learned the word photosynthesis. And so God creates light with the word from God's mouth through the breath of God and the word of God. And God sees light and calls it good. 
And we as humans have internalized the goodness of light throughout the years. Light plays a huge role in what we consider to be beautiful. Think of the galaxies and nebulas that the Hubble Space Telescope has opened our eyes to. Think of sunrises and sunsets, where the light reflects off of the clouds and dust in the sky to paint a glorious picture. Think of rainbows or light through stained glass windows. Light is part of what we call general revelation. General re revelation is something that we observe, something that we see just out in the world, and it makes us think that there must be something more to the universe than what we can see and perceive. Light is something that points us back to God if we let it. Because light not only aids our life on this earth, it helps make it beautiful. It's easy to see why God calls light good. And so light is fundamental to us. Genesis tells us that there was light in the beginning, the first of God's good creations, and our understanding of the universe bears that out. In fact, light is so fundamental to us that right away, as soon as people start using metaphor for things, we start to see light used as a metaphor for goodness and darkness used as a metaphor for evil. And so it's not too much of a stretch, just the way humans have thought, to begin to associate God with light. Which brings us to our second point. Light is a metaphor for God. We see this in our second passage from scripture this morning. First John tells us that God is light and in God there is no darkness at all. Those who follow God and love their siblings in Christ are walking in the light. Those who don't are walking in darkness and have lost their way. But this is not the only place in scripture that we see God associated with light and goodness associated with light. James 1.17 reminds us that every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Sounds a lot like we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, that God knows how to give good things. Scripture tells us to expect goodness from God. And that verse from James draws from Psalm 136, where God is praised as the one who made the great lights in verse 7, whose steadfast love endures forever. And of course, in one of the most comforting passages in the Bible, and one of the boldest, in John 1, Jesus is named as the light of all people. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. But light, like God, doesn't just give life and comfort. It also enlightens us. It brings us understanding. One of the clearest associations of light with God is the story of the burning bush in Exodus 3 where Moses is drawn by the wondrous sight of a bush that is burning but not consumed. And when he turns aside to look at it, that's when God speaks to him. God enlightens Moses about his role in freeing God's people. And God stays with the Israelites as they flee from Egypt as a pillar of cloud and fire, as light. God shows a deep care 
for those who must travel to find safely. This is one of the most profound examples of God caring for the traveler in the Bible. And we find that the God who is light often shines in the places where the darkness seems thickest. And so throughout the Bible, light is a metaphor for God. It's so pervasive that we even use it in the Nicene Creed to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And this, finally, is how we come to our tradition of using light to remind us of the presence of God. See, light is fundamental to us, bringing life and beauty to us, and we've come to use it as a metaphor for the God from whom life and beauty and all things come. And so we, in worship, remind ourselves that God is present in this space by bringing the light in at the beginning of the service, keeping it in our candles, and at the end of the service, letting light lead us back out into the world. We use light to remind us of the presence of a good God. And we often do this through candles. We have new candles up on the altar this morning. You might notice that the flame is a little bit brighter, which is always good to remember that God is here and abundant with us in big, bright, tall flames. We use this not only through these candles that we light on Sunday morning, but candles that we use to mark special moments throughout the year. Think of candlelight vigils or services for those that we've lost or those who are going through a time of great pain. Think of the candles that we all hold on Christmas Eve as Christ is born anew in our hearts. Think of the Christ candle, that big gigantic white candle that we'll have. Christians around the world light it during Easter vigil, which happens on that long night between Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday morning. And that light reminds us that the darkness did not overcome our Christ. We keep that candle lit through the whole Easter season, all the way to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes in tongues of fire, and we remember that light and the Spirit live in us too. We light the candles each Sunday, and when we do that, it's a little Easter, a little reminder that the God who made the light of the stars lives in us too. And so darkness will not overcome us either. We use candles for this task because candles have a way of helping us focus. Fire draws our attention. It gives light and warmth, of course, but it also dances and it sparks and it feels alive in a way that a light bulb just doesn't. Though, to be fair, anybody who's worked with circuits and wiring will tell you that electricity has a life of its own. But often, when you're beginning to practice an intentional time of quiet in your spiritual life, you'll be instructed to light a candle and practice focusing on it, letting your other thoughts pass you by. A candle is the perfect amount of fire to take us away from the world outside and usher us into a space of openness and listening. I know that from experience. About halfway through my last year of seminary, so this past year, I found myself in a season of spiritual darkness, one that I'm still banishing the last of the shadows from. As a part of my degree, I had to go experience Christianity in another culture, another context. 
which is how I found myself at the Central Methodist Mission in Cape Town, South Africa, staring at a prayer candle. While the rest of my group was out exploring the market, I was desperately seeking a word from the Lord. And as I was sitting there in the silence, a young man came in. He was black, and there was no way for me to know if he spoke Zulu or Kosa or any of the other 11 official languages in South Africa, or if he was from South Africa at all. There are many migrants from Zimbabwe and other countries who come to South Africa to work and then send that money back home. But whatever language he spoke, wherever he was from, he was clearly in distress. And he came up to the prayer area, and he lit a candle, and he started to pray. And he didn't say anything, but his prayers were thunderous to me. And as he prayed, the fire responded. That's the real picture of the flame. I swear, it was six inches tall. And he lit the same tiny votive candle that I have. He had a mountainous pillar of fire next to the tiny flame of my candle. And he prayed for 10 minutes that felt like 10 years. And I found myself praying for him, not knowing exactly what to pray for. I watched his candle as we prayed, and for that moment, we were completely united by this light that we shared. He left before I did. I want to say that he seemed less troubled than he was before, but only God knows whether that's true or not. I left eventually too, blowing out both of our candles, and I was stunned by this experience, and maybe a little less in the dark than I had been before, a little more open to God than I had been before. I find that sometimes, in our darkness, God comes to us as candles or stars or fireflies, little pinpricks of light, just enough to remind us of what sunlight is. I think God does that because sometimes, in our darkness, the flash of a lightning bug is all that we can handle. And that, church, is why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. This is why light is a part of our worship. We recognize that light is essential to us, that it's a metaphor for God, and that it reminds us that God is with us. We bring light into this space, we keep it in our candles, and that keeps us focused, even as our minds want to wander to the distractions outside of the church. And then after we've kept it in this moment, we carry it back out into the world, hopefully with all of our hair follicles intact. Because in this space, we are fed. Through light, word, water, bread, and cup, we are fed goodness that comes only from God. And at the end of the service, we go out into the world, taking that goodness that we have gained to a world that sorely needs it. And that means that my challenge for you this week is twofold. The first thing I want you to do as you go about your lives this week is to notice the light in the world around you. When you see a particularly beautiful thing that has happened because of light, send up a prayer of thanks to the God who is light. Whether it's a sunrise or a sunset or a beam through clouds or the thousands of stars you can see when the clouds are gone at night, let the light you see in the world remind you of God and God's presence with you always. And second, as best as you can, 
Be that light for others. Be the goodness that God wants to bring into the world. The funny thing about light is that we have a hard time looking straight at it. You should never look straight at the sun because our eyes just can't absorb it. But we can easily see the things that light lights up. At this moment, photons from the sun and from the lights and even our candles are bouncing off of you and into the eyes of the people around you. It's how we see. Let God's goodness be like that light. Let it bounce off of you and onto others. And I know that sounds mighty and mystical sometimes, and sometimes it is, but I think you all already have a good idea of what that looks like. Letting God's goodness bounce off of you looks like feeding those who need food, welcoming those who are new to this place, and visiting those who could use some light, the lonely, the sick, those in prison. It means being a neighbor to all who come across your path. You can do any of those things, even once this week. Then the light that you have received in this place will have found its way out into the world. And that is a good and beautiful thing. Amen.